Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning, good new year to you. Happy New Year! Good afternoon to you, good evening to you, and good, good middle, middle of the night. You have a good middle of the night uh, quick story. Can I say it real quick? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so this is from our friend uh, Sally Ann Beresford in, in England. I labeled it a short, sweet message is my title here. It said, hi, Dr. Stu. Hope you and Bliss are both well. I have just released my second book, The Art of Giving Birth, Five Key Physiologic Principles but I haven't sent you a copy yet as I know you were on your travels. I just wanted to let you know that I was recently on my way home from a birth and was listening to your latest podcast episode. When you said, good middle of the night, I burst into tears. Despite uh, hearing this many times, I hadn't appreciated how much it would mean to me in that moment. The fact that you were validating that I was up all night, feeling exhausted and overjoyed at the beautiful birth I had just witnessed meant so much in that moment. These little wow. thoughts are what make you both so special. Much love, <laughs> Dalian Ann Beresford. Isn't that great? Yes, that's so sweet. I love it. I love it. Um, so how how are you doing? This is the first time we're recording in um, the new year, although our listeners will be hearing it mid-January. But um, yeah. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing great. I've got a lot of projects going on here at the homestead. And uh, I had a little leaky roof yesterday in the guest house and the, and the ceiling, the bathroom fell in. <laughs> oh, no. So we're going to fix that. Yeah. You know what? You just got to laugh. <laughs> just got, you got you got to laugh. I'm doing great. Last year was a great year for me. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what this year is going to hold. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, how about you? Great. I got to see my sons um, for Christmas time. So they were here for a week. Um, we were planning to go to Disneyland for Sky's birthday, which is December 28th. But who knew that Disneyland, you need a reservation now. And they were completely sold out. What? I didn't. Yeah. And you pay per day. So there's different days of the week where there's surge pricing. So for her birthday, it would have been $179 per ticket. So are you saying that this wasn't the happiest place on earth for you that day? <laughs> well, you know, we just decided to not go to LA, which, which was fine for me. I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that they were now doing, you know, uh, I long for the good old days. Yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> I was like, this is not my Disneyland. Oh, well. Speaking, um, of, but speaking of the good old days, though, um, you asked me a little question about sort of recapping Last year, do you want me to do that or or do you want me to not do that? Yeah, I want you to do that. I want to do that. And I want to talk about my my I hadn't finished uh, sharing. Yet. Yeah, I don't know, because you've got stuff to share. I know that you talked about you've got yeah. two births you want to talk about. So before we get into the present day, I thought going back, you know, just chronologically would make more sense. I know that you sure. shared a lot of your stuff on an Instagram post, which was lovely. I'm going to say it again, but go ahead. You go first. What, what, what happened last year? Well, let's see. I did um, a bunch of things. I did a grand rounds at a hospital in San Diego. I saw, Ham I saw Hamilton with my daughter. I bought an RV. I went to London where I met Aaron and Kemi and Sally Ann. I had, saw the passing of my longtime horse, Dulce. 
I played poker in Las Vegas, bought a new house, living in a new state. That's obviously big time stuff. Mm -hmm. I spoke to an audience in Armenia. I did made progress on my twin paper with Rixa. Hopefully that'll be out in the spring this year. And I had my first Thanksgiving in my new homestead with my daughter, which was lovely. And she cooked and it was, it was fun. And then I did a bunch of seminars. I did, I went to um, Kentucky, South Carolina, Redding, California, Oahu, Sedona, Kansas City, Medicine Bow, Wyoming, Bozeman, Fort Collins, Colorado, Austin, and Dallas, Texas. Probably left one out. And uh, then also I was on a bunch of podcasts, mm-hmm. Cleveland Home Birth Podcast, Explore Motherhood, Decidedly Podcast, and Margolis's podcast, Health Babes Podcast, Kimberly Vanderbeek's podcast, which I don't think has a name yet because it's not released yet. The Birth Cafe podcast, and then a couple of those special uh, learning things with Alicia and another one with Avril, mm-hmm. uh, those things that people sign up for. I can't ever remember the names of them. Yeah. So that was a busy year, but I and I only did like, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 births last year because after April 1st, I, I only did three, maybe four births mm-hmm. the rest of the year. Not missing that mm. because I'm not missing on call. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, I know that people listening know that I just, I, it's unique for me after all this time to be able to go to bed at night and know that I'm not going to get woken up. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it's just the, it's the not knowing that was always the thing that weighed heavily on you. And uh, I think, you know, health is really important. And, uh, so I don't know what this year is going to hold as far as going back to birthing. I might do a few here and there. Uh, but I'm going to be teaching my first stint will be uh, coming up in a week or two in Indianapolis, um, in Fortville, Indiana. So you can go to my events page on the website, birthinginstincts.com, and you can find out where I'm going to be next. And that's me in a nutshell. So let's hear from you. (laughs) I I love it. You know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, um, when I left, uh, so in 2020, I did 48 births. Um, as a solo practitioner, which is a lot. And then, um, you know, 2021 was about my travels, um, doing the Love More tour. And then I got here to Santa Barbara and I was like, gosh, things are so slow. I'm really not doing very much. But when I did my recap, I was like, holy moly, girl, you did a lot of stuff this year. So um, I'm just going to read what I wrote because it was so easy. It'll be so easy. So In January, I explored San Luis Obispo and did two beautiful home births with my great friend, Tanya. In February, Hayes and I led our very first innate journey birth to 11 amazing women and had my very first client here in Santa Barbara. I continued to get hired here in Santa Barbara, so I decided that that's where I will be staying. And then with a light caseload, I had the freedom to travel to Sacramento, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and excursions to Lake Tahoe, Pacific Grove, Cambria, Big Sur, Flagstaff, and Sedona. Um, I really expanded my community this year, which has been so lovely because it's what I missed the most about leaving LA. And then I worked with 13 new amazing mentees this year. And then I also was on a bunch of podcasts. I was... um, Also in the Nine Golden Months book, the Indie Birth Podcast, Doing It at Home, the Intentional Birth Summit, um, and the summit that was put out by the Midwife Method. And then I was on the panel in uh, uh, the ICANN panel in Santa Barbara, which we talked about. I deepened my breach skills by um, 
doing some training with Breaches Without Borders. And then I completed my breathwork training with Refelation's Breathwork. Um, I recorded <laughs> about 50 podcasts with you. We couldn't exactly figure out how many. And you came to Santa Barbara twice and we did a couple events here together, which was really fun. Um, I became a preceptor and took on my first student and I launched the um, Bridge Midwives Project this year. And then I also did 10 births this year, which is way different, which is why I feel like I'm so much slower, but I've got all these other things going on. So I, I'm sure you feel this too. It's so interesting to kind of start to shift the work that we're doing in different ways. Um, and I'm also very excited about what this year is going to bring. And I hope that you and I are finally going to start our book this year. We were going to do it this summer, but that we didn't are. happen. Once, that, once my paper on twins is done, we, we are. You know, that's an, that's an exhaustive list. And, and, and you know what, right? we touch, we touch a lot of lives and the people that touch us help change us to touch a lot of lives. So, you know, we're paying it forward. It's great. I wanted to just mention before you tell your birth stories real quickly that we have a guest today. We're going to talk to our friend of the podcast, Hermine Hayes Klein, and we're going to talk about the trial in Nebraska. I don't and know if you guys haven't seen it, it's a lot of hours to watch and I wasn't able to get through all of it yet, but I, I mean, I'm fascinated by, um, the whole process. So I'm so excited to talk to her today. You can find it on YouTube. Um, it's the, Court it's, TV. A ter it's a terrible title. What is it again? Those two, it's like the midwife death trial, yeah, Nebraska midwife death trial or something like that, yeah. but it's not, you, you just search court TV. You'll find it. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it with her. mean, she's, you know, once we, we'll just wind her up. Her go. <laughs> right. She's brilliant. I, and it was so amazing for me. I've heard her speak so many times, but it was so amazing for me to see her in action. And I think you guys would really appreciate it as well. So um, I do want to let you, the listeners know that we are going to be doing something a little bit different this year, and we're really excited about it. Um, Stu is a little bit better at keeping track of all of the amazing communications that you guys send to us. But I, on the other hand, feel like things are slipping through my fingers. So one of the things that we want to do is um, have you guys, when you have a question um, or a comment or, you know, any of those things, those amazing um, um, interactions that you guys have with us. We have two things that we would love for you to be able to do. One is to email us at birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. And both Stu and I will be have access to that. So you will be getting us both. Um, and we will be able to kind of utilize the information that you send us in a much more efficient way. And then the really exciting thing is you can also leave us a voicemail and your voice may be used, question or comment or story may be used on the podcast. So that phone number is 805-399-0439. So that it won't be live necessarily, but it, it'll be great because instead of just reading your, your emails, we get to hear your voice. Um, so I'm super excited about that. Yeah, me too. I, I I wrote the number down. We'll repeat it at the end of the podcast today, and it'll be in it'll be in the show notes too, because yeah. I would love to hear those voices. But yeah. you know what? We've got Hermine uh, waiting. So you wanted to tell a birth story or two. Do you want to? You want to do that? How about we save it till next time? Nobody's going to know the difference. We'll just we'll bring on Hermine because we uh, are <laughs> we have so much to say to her. So next well, time, well, they'll they'll I'll know start the with two birth stories. They'll know the difference now. 
<laughs> you guys, you guys will have to tune in next time to be continued. Bliss tells birth story time. All right. So I'm going to bring Hermine in. And while she's coming in, I'll introduce her again because people who don't didn't hear her in previous podcasts when she was on. Um, she's back and we love having her back. Can you hear us, Hermine? Hi, darlings. Yes, I can. Hi, darlings. Okay, so before, hi, before we get started, hi. I just want to do a, a brief introduction and then I've got a couple of little breach comments I want to read into the record okay. <laughs> before we start uh, talking about the trial. So okay. Hermine Klein is an attorney, most of all, and an excellent one at that. And she's an international advocate for human rights and childbirth. She's a speaker, she's an educator, and she's a hero to many of us. And today, most importantly, uh, she was a huge part of the defense team for the midwife Angela Hawk. Uh, in Nebraska trial that was on court TV, a team that got more than just an acquittal. And we're going to um, talk, I get emotional about this stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about um, some of the bigger things, you know, that you and I have talked about before on the precedent. But I just wanted to kind of preface it by reading two short little comments about things that we're up against in the breach world. This is from Paige, uh, a listener on Instagram. She says, my OB is trained in breech births and said he won't do them. It's an automatic C-section. I considered switching OBs and decided not to because he's the only one in my area that's trained in breech birth. And I know I can decline a C-section solely for a breech baby. It's so frustrating. He said several things. No OB chooses to do them. This is a no-risk hospital. I don't like the way they make me feel. I always walk out of them like, man, that sucked. And I wouldn't do it for my own child. I wouldn't do it for you. I finally just said, okay, and stopped arguing with him. So that's one. And then somebody sent me something that uh, a physician that trained at the same, or that worked at the same institution that I did for many years, Judy Reichman, she may be retired by now, but she said this in 2006. This is certainly something to take seriously. I guess she was interviewed in an article. Statistics show a 5.7% chance of infant death after a breech delivery and a 0.4% for a regular delivery. What's more, few doctors today have sufficient training and are experienced to perform breech deliveries. Breech deliveries bring a risk of complications if the baby's head gets stuck. In a vertex head-first delivery, if the head doesn't fit, labor stops progressing and the doctor has time to decide whether to perform a C-section. Dr. Reichman's bottom line, if your baby remains in the breech position and can't be turned, you should have a planned C-section. Okay, so, and I have a whole long story, but we don't have time for everything that I get. I always have more stuff than we have time for. It's true. <laughs> but it's it's in this setting that 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 I teach breech delivery that Rixa and David and Christine Laureate with the uh, Breach Without Borders people go around teaching. Even though we in this world and people that listen to us know that this is an option and it's a reasonable option in skilled hands and even ACOG supports it. Um, they don't support it in the home setting, but they support it. This is the kind of rhetoric that goes around and everyone thinks that way. And so I think this is the setting that takes place when you have a bad outcome with a breech birth, especially in the home setting. And so, you know, and everybody, if everybody by now must know that there was a trial that took place for an event that happened almost three years ago, I believe. Um, I don't know. Everybody knows. So I think we should. Hermine, yeah. can we start with the beginning? Just briefly what the case was about and all of that. I mean. Okay. So um, in middle of December, 2022, 
there was a trial in Omaha, Nebraska for the uh, criminal prosecution of an unlicensed direct entry midwife for support of a family in a home birth um, that involved a surprise breach presentation and a uh, perinatal death. And that that happened actually over three years ago in 2019. There was an urgent, an emergent hospital transfer following the emergency that occurred at home. And um, the hospital providers called the police on the midwife. Uh, criminal investigation was initiated at the time. Um, there was a lot of press uh, at the time, I guess, locally in Omaha, apparently um, People Magazine and New York Times covered the arrest of the midwife. So, so the providers called the police. The midwife's home was raided. Her family home was raided um, in front of her children. And the midwife was arrested. The parents were questioned um, uh, about, you know, their, while their baby was still living in the precious hours they had with their baby. And afterward, too. And then eventually... You know, law moves slow. And when law is moving slow, those who are facing um, legal processes live in a state of suspension and live in a state of stress and even trauma. So everybody involved waiting for this case to finally go to trial has been in that state of suspension for three and a half years since the tragedy. And finally, the matter went to trial in Omaha in December. Um, it went uh, before a, it, it was uh, tried as a bench trial, which means it was heard by a judge rather than a jury. Um, defendants in criminal cases generally have a choice to have their matter heard by a jury of their peers, meaning regular citizens, or to have it decided by a judge. And uh, there can be wisdom on either side of that decision. In this case, the defendants chose um, a bench trial to have the matter decided by the judge. And so um, over the, the, I guess it was December 12th to 16th, there was a week-long trial, three full days of evidence, um, a morning of closing arguments. And then on Friday the 16th, um, the judge, uh, Judge Burns in Omaha, issued his verdict. He found um, the midwife not guilty. And he made um, some other statements about the case that formed his decision and his opinion about the matter. A reason why we're having this conversation now is that you know, again, you you guys know that when tragedies happen in the home birth setting, they're often covered by the press in wherever they happen. The press loves stories like this in a way that the press is not interested in stories of babies that die in the hospital setting. And that's that's a, for cultural reasons, you know, about what the culture finds interesting and why. For those, re you know, for the same kinds of reasons, I suppose, that the press was interested in the case when it first happened in 2019, the press was interested in the trial and the whole trial was live streamed on court TV. And so folks, not only in Omaha, but nationally and even internationally, got to follow the trial and see the kinds of arguments that were presented for the conviction of the midwife, the arguments that were presented in defense, uh, examination of the witnesses. And so the, the trial, in a way, turned into an educational opportunity regarding a lot of the issues at stake in the trial for anybody who wants to tune into that, um, to those recordings. How did you feel about the fact that it was going to be so uh, like easily viewed by so many people? It was only the week before the trial that we got notice that the mm -hmm. that this had been requested by and that the judge had issued an order. Honestly, I can't remember. It was like, huh, interesting. This is going to be interesting. And it was all going to be a mystery. How is this going to play out? Like there, I mean, we could with 
with law and with trials, you can do your best to be prepared. I feel like getting through a trial is like a combination of be as prepared as you can be, but also be ready to roll with whatever's going to unfold and be flexible, kind of like birth. I was going to say, kind of yeah. like birth. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, you know, I've spoken to you many times. I've spent time at your home with you. Um, I just, I respect the work that you do so much. And it was so amazing to see you in action and, and to watch the contrast between how you approached questioning and the prosecuting attorney. And I just, um, you know, you're just brilliant. You did such an amazing job. I, I haven't been able to watch the entire thing, unfortunately, but um, what I, what I, what Dr. Stu um, asked me to, directed me to watch was um, the, I don't know what you call it, cross-examination cross of Dr. Yeah. Westman, right? Yeah. And um, I just, it, you were just phenomenal. So first of all, I just wanted to just you. say, um, you must feel so overjoyed at, at how this resolved. I, I am. I'm yeah. so, so happy that my client was fully vindicated and that the judge made as wise a decision as he did. But honestly, like, can you say a little more about your experience of the, you know, different styles of questioning? Because honestly, it's like during the trial, it's like, if I wasn't on, I wasn't like, I was only, I was like, writing my questions, reviewing my stuff. I barely noticed the mm -hmm. other stuff going on until it, it was like my turn kind of thing. So, you yeah. know, as somebody who got to pull that lens back and sort of observe, what were you seeing about these different approaches? Well, I think for one, you know, and I was watching with my boyfriend, so he's, you know, more, he knows stuff, but he's more of a layman than I am. And so I was like, it's so interesting that this attorney obviously is, you know, knows law and knows how to be a trial attorney, but really knows very little about birth and midwifery and all of that. So I'm sure that you learn things, but you, I knew, I know you and where you come from. So I knew that the depth of, of where you were going to go with the questioning was going to be so different and knowing how you speak and stuff. I just noticed your um, approach. And I think Stu even said something to me, like it's almost like theater. Right. So I was like, I could tell, um, that, that the way that you were asking the questions and the way that you were approaching everything was very intentional to, to, um, to not have your uh, personality or your opinions about it influence how you were coming across. And, um, and then presenting the, the material, like she just kept asking questions generally. And you were like, well, let's look at this document. Let's look at this report that you said, let's look at ACOG's reports. And so I felt like it was just so much more um, revealing. And it was obvious that she, the doctor was definitely kind of caught off guard in terms of uh, she was very comfortable in answering, obviously, with the with the prosecuting attorney. But when it came to you, she was like, Oh, <laughs> which I you think know? you can expect in any cross examination, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, Cause they've been prepared absolutely. by the person who's calling them, but they don't know what's going to come from the other side. It was just so obvious. And, um, yeah. I just, I just found you to, you know, to be brilliant. So bliss, guess what time yeah. it is. It's time to talk about our sponsor. Yeah. Let's talk about element. There's Element LMNT is that tasty electrolyte drink that's got all the good stuff in it, none of the BS. And it comes in multiple flavors. And we are going to talk a little bit today about one of the new flavors, but it's great for, for laboring women. It's great for birth workers. It's great for people when working out. 
whether it's hot outside or cold outside, putting in electrolytes with no sugar is better for you and your body. So Bliss, tell us it because Element's proud to announce they've got a new flavor. It's so funny, right? We just did this special on chocolate and then they hit us with this. So they have a chocolate medley that includes three flavors, chocolate caramel, mint chocolate, and chocolate salt. And all chocolate flavors are enjoyed hot on their own or in your hot beverage, like hot chocolate, no peppermint mocha, or any other cozy beverage you can create. The chocolate medley and all its chocolate caramel and mint chocolatey salty goodness is here for a limited time. And when it's gone, it's gone. So get it while it's hot. Wow. So if you guys want to have a chocolate menage, you got three flavors <laughs> of chocolate, go for it. <laughs> go uh, for it. Just go to drinkelement.com backslash birthing instincts. And for every order, you'll get a free sample pack. We've sort of had some confusion lately because I've been saying it wrong. So it's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts. Whatever you order, they'll add in a free sample pack. Thanks, Element. Thank you. Anything you wanted to add to that, Stu? Yeah, well, I wanted to, some people who probably didn't watch the whole trial and stuff, there's a lot that uh, Hermine and I talked about a week or so ago. Um, I want to get to that. But first, I, I, I just want maybe Hermine to explain why they chose the 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 charges that they chose and not charges that they didn't choose. You know what I'm going with. You know where I'm going with this. So why don't you elaborate on why they chose to charge her with, I think, what, felony child neglect resulting in the death of a child or something like that? Mm -hmm. I mean, so yeah. So I think what you're referring to is the fact that the midwife, Angela Hawk, was charged with child neglect resulting in death as opposed to practice of midwifery without a license or practicing medicine without a license, which could have also been charges that the state could have pursued. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not privy to the decision-making processes at the state prosecutor's office. I mean, I think that we can surmise from the nature of the charge that they wanted her to explicitly be held responsible for the death of a child and not just for, um, you know, the practice of midwifery without a license. Like this was about the allegation that she was responsible. And when you think about, and, and that is for the outcome, for the outcome, for the baby, for the outcome, why would a state want to do that? I mean, so again, I can speculate. I'm, I, was, I wasn't part of these decisions on the prosecutor's part, but- I'll Speculate away. If, if, your, <laughs> if your goal is to prevent people from trying, to make everybody go to the hospital, and submit to the will of the obstetricians or whoever's there. And if your goal is to make it impossible and way too terrifying for any midwife to show up for any woman outside the hospital, no matter how strong her calling, you can do that more effectively if you convince those midwives and those mommies or whoever else that they're going to be held responsible for a death than that they're going to be held responsible for their choice to practice, um, you know, to, to do these things without a license and the, and to face the risk that they'll be accused of that. So, and, you know, and if you want, a, if you want a spectacle, right, if you want a big show <laughs> and that show is kind of about, I mean, like, I don't know over the past century, how much consciousness legal bodies have brought into enforcing medical monopoly over childbirth, right? We know that the States played this role in the United States for, well over a century now, right? And when they and that's what was happening here. Do I do I I have no idea whether these guys think I'm just gonna make sure the doctors get all the business because and 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 doubtless when they do, it's because they believe on the basis of their own cultural conditioning 
that that's the right thing, you know, that this is the right decision and that what happened there is wrong and that someone should be punished. Yeah, we yeah. think we sometimes think that people in positions of power are there because they're excellent. And, you know, that's a big mistake that people should make all the time. I mean, you know, we can't get into their heads at all, but they didn't prove a single element of the charges beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the which they knew was the um, standard. Mm-hmm. Um, shouldn't they have known that they couldn't do that? Two and a half years ago or three years ago, that there wasn't enough here to do that, because, you know, I watched the whole trial. I, you know, I was on a ski trip with my family and. The kids went to bed early. And so I would go down into my little cubby hole and I'd stay up till one in the morning <laughs> watching these things. And their experts didn't really know much about breach delivery. They didn't really have a breach expert at all. The pathologists and the uh, and the coroner or whatever that guy was, um, they're making statements that were completely off base and incorrect. Um, even your witness was incorrect on, <laughs> on a lot of stuff regarding regarding breach. But Dr. Lesman... I mean, she openly admits that she's actually never done a breach delivery. Never um, seen no, she, She's never seen done one. a singleton vaginal breach delivery. At term. At term. The preemie foot lens. Yeah. Done, done no, I know she wasn't although an I can't even believe that's compared. Yeah, I know. But would, for she, her, be considered an, would she be considered an expert or just no, a material witness? How can you be an expert in vaginal breach of a baby at term if you've never seen the vaginal birth of a breach baby at term? Because you have an MD behind your name, which is gets me back to the point about the bench trial. And the fact yeah. is that you told me that had this been a jury trial, yeah. this Things outcome might different. have been completely different. Yeah. So and I think that gets to the, your question, like, well, why go this way? Don't you know from the outset that you're not going to be able to meet these elements? Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the heart of the charge was that the, the accusation that the midwife had caught recklessly that is that is um knowing and consciously disregarding a very serious risk placed the child in a condition in a position in which the child's life was endangered and the baby died as a result so when you think of you know these elements so as we argued in our closing arguments and our closing arguments are a great place to sort of see the summary of our position in this case as a defense, um, we just showed that none of those could be met. Um, Negligently, recklessly, um, no, (laughs) because she was never negligent. She was never reckless. Um, And of course, this whole case was about the conflation of civil negligence with criminal negligence. Those are two very different things, as the judge finally pointed out. Um, And then the idea of place a minor child in a position that endangers its life how can you place a, a fetus anywhere? How could somebody who's not the mother place a fetus anywhere when the fetus is contained inside the body of a competent adult? And that's in a way the heart of this case. Yeah, they could only have succeeded if they could have convinced a judge or a jury that Angela Hawk replaced the consciousness of the mother with her own consciousness such that the mother, the pregnant woman, the birthing person was like a puppet being moved from place to place. And that in essence is always the charge in these in these charged allegations against midwives, that birthing women are, are silly little fools that just do what they're told. And that the really the only question is who's telling them what to do. And if the right person's telling them what to do, 
then they're going to go and be good, obedient girls and do whatever the OB says. And if they're not doing the right thing, it must be because somebody else told that silly little chicken what to do. <laughs> and all of that is highly misogynistic. Yeah. Uh, because so, women are strong and capable people who do make their own decisions. So they couldn't prove that. Let me just finish this point. And then minor child cause the child to be placed. That's an, another thing. It's like, this isn't a child. This is an unborn baby. And so again, just the nature of placing a child anywhere or doing anything for a child or to a child is totally different if that human being is inside the body of another human being and biologically one with it still versus if that person is freestanding. Um, but at the end of the day, and, and so again, they couldn't prove any of that stuff, none of that right. stuff, because none of that stuff were true facts. Um, and it was all, that would have been a Did false they not know all that the way. going in. Look, if this had gone to a jury, read the, read those, uh, those YouTube comments on the court TV, yes. those people would have hung her from the hot nearest tree. They don't care about the law. They would have hung the parents with her at the highest tree. It's like, who do we have to kill here? They well, don't when this care. First, when this first broke her mean, um, the comments were really quite nasty about Angie and about her doing breach birth at home. And again, this is the kind of thing where stop everybody, count to 10. You don't know anything. Stop making judgments. I mean, you know, they there's a thing that the was... judge came back with not guilty. And only then did that comment stream magically change to, oh, I knew that. Oh, I'm so <laughs> relieved. Until then, it was everybody wanted her hung from the tree. And so and when I read that, it was like, oh, my God, thank God. Thank God we've got a clear legal thinker that's analyzing yeah. this case yeah. because otherwise it's just too easy to be like, well, she misled them. And so we got a bad baby. She and... placed the baby somewhere by misleading them. That's the whole, you all saw the prosecution. That was the argument. Yeah. Misleading is a way of replacing the consciousness um, of the mother. And then the, you know, and then convince them that breach birth isn't allowed. Women shouldn't be allowed to give birth at home. And that by allowing any of these things, um, she's responsible. All of that would have been incredibly sloppy legal thinking and perhaps open to an appeal that, but that would have been, um, so, so again, I mean, I think your, your question essentially, Stuart, is isn't it obvious that this case was going to lose? And unfortunately, what we know from the conviction of midwives in other jurisdictions on similar arguments, not at all. Midwife sure, could have totally. lost, totally. despite the law. So I just want to take a couple steps back because there are people who are not necessarily familiar with any of it that are listening today. So I just want to break a couple of things down. So in Nebraska, is it illegal to have home birth? Are there, are there licensed midwives there? Like where did Angie make her decisions on how to practice? Um, that yes. would be a great place for people to understand too. Well, thank you so much for pulling that lens back because this is really important. We can't understand what this case is about unless we understand that Nebraska is a state where direct entry midwives are not licensed. Licensure is not available to them. They are underground and where the only midwives who are licensed are certified nurse midwives, but the law explicitly says that any nurse licensed for midwifery can only do deliveries in a hospital or a clinical setting and may not do them at home. So the only people who are actually forbidden under the terms of their licensure to be involved with home birth are, cert are licensed certified nurse midwives. Um, there's no explicit law that applies to parents and midwives are left unaddressed by the law. And so, you know, as you know, 37 states license direct entry midwives for home birth and direct entry midwives are the vast majority of the providers of home birth services. So they really are, home birth midwives are for the most part, 
direct entry midwives, um, but there are only legal providers in 37 states. So what happens in those other other states? Um, so it's as illegal. Know, in well, I mean, let's talk about that. I mean, y'all, yeah. you can link this conversation straight back to your podcast with Angie, and you're talking right. about illegal. Um, yeah. You know, I haven't, honestly, I haven't listened to that podcast. Um, and, and um, you know, I'm glad that it didn't become an issue at this trial. And that's the kind of thing a jury might have had a heyday with. Again, I have, I don't even listen to it, but I can imagine what it's about, which is to discussing the, the belief that there can be safe legal spaces for a midwife to practice in an unlicensed jurisdiction. And if anybody ever believed that there is a safe legal place for an unlicensed midwife to practice in an unlicensed jurisdiction, for Christ's sake, let this trial be the answer to that. So what you're talking about is the private membership association. I'm not just talking, the PMA or the, some midwives for years now have been calling me up and saying, Hey, if I get a private membership association in my unlicensed midwifery state and people join it, am I protected? And my answer has been, I do not think that would ever protect you. No, no. uh -uh." And if, again, if there was any doubt about that, let this case be your answer. But again, th- my point here is not about PMA or not PMA. My point is about licensure. <laughs> midwives in Massachusetts, midwives in Georgia, midwives in you know North Carolina, I think they're still unlicensed there and wherever else, they're often telling this story, oh, we're illegal here. We're not illegal, we're illegal. And, and what they're talking about is there is no law that explicitly says, ladies, you're going to go to jail if you do this. It doesn't address them. But what they need to understand is that without the legal security of regulation and licensure, criminal law is always going to be on the state's burner for a way of dealing with a bad outcome. And when they're dealing with a situation where the doctors at the hospital following a tragic transfer, like, do something, get that midwife, get her, make sure that midwife, you're going to do something to her, right? They'll find some if they're if they are, are convinced by those medical providers. So yes, bliss. This was an unlicensed state, and that's you know what tends to happen in unlicensed states when there's a tragic outcome, is because licensure cannot be used as a proceeding for assessing whether the midwife was negligent. The state turns to criminal law, which it shouldn't. It should. It's highly inappropriate, but it tends to do it over and over again. Um, and so that's what happened in this state. But hopefully an outcome of this case could be to strengthen the position of Nebraska families that are pushing for licensure and um, regulation of out-of-hospital birth. Well, I won't get too far down this this mm-hmm. path because that's not what this is about necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I think it's very important to also kind of address that there are many midwives or aspiring midwives who do not want to be licensed, who are giving Mm -hmm. up their licensure, who are are pushing back because that is also limiting a family's ability to make true informed choice. And the midwife is now beholden to the laws and not necessarily able to just provide the care that they are committed to providing. So I think it's important for people to know the reality. And, and what, I, what I hear you saying is, is you're not going to be protected. And I think people know that there's a risk that they could go to jail, they could be prosecuted. Um, and so it's, it's, that's the state of the world that we live in. And I think that that's important to understand. But I think that a lot of our listeners and um, myself included are, you know, really feeling like 
I don't know if I want to have a license anymore because I can't, I can't support families in the way that I believe is morally valid. Um, so that's a part of what you're describing is, is that midwives, what you're describing is midwives who are working in a, in a jurisdiction where the regulations that apply to their license require them to choose between following the law of their license and providing ethical care to their clients. And so the issue there, when you, I think the phrase you use is because they're giving up their license because that won't let them provide informed consent and ethical care. And then that is bad regs. You know what I mean? So what you're talking about is places where midwifery is licensed and regulated, but the way the regulations are written violates the constitutional rights of decision-making of the patients being served by the home birth midwife. So for example, in Europe, in England, in the Netherlands, where which doctors love to cite as safe home birth, they, they say, oh, well, in, in Holland and in, um, in England, if it's a VBAC or a breach, that's a contraindication for home birth. But Holland and England have a very clear duty of non-abandonment and a very clear right of medical decision-making. So, wh- so they're never going to see a guideline as anything more than a basis for a recommendation. And the way that the guidelines are applied is always ultimately going to be ethical and reflect the underlying fundamental law of informed consent. So that's mm-hmm. good law. <laughs> you know what I mean? What you're dealing with here in the United States in a lot, a lot of jurisdictions is bad law. Anytime you've got a, a law that says force her to do this or force her to do that. We're looking at bad law. We're looking at unconstitutional law, but my, um, you know, if I'm guiding midwives to try to set up their professions in the way that's legally the most secure for them and allows them to provide that ethical care to the clients, ultimately the way to do that is to get involved in the drafting of the regs. And I get it. I get that you're, you know, an individual and like, here's this giant state that's beholden to all these, the medical lobby and midwives, you know, are making it month to month trying to survive. They're going to take that on. Instead, it pushes them back underground, the place they were in the early 1970s. All right. We wanted, I know so many midwives that were the first in line for the license when that license became available in the eighties, in the nineties. And then ultimately they had to abandon the license because the way that those regs were written and applied did not allow them to provide ethical care. And the whole reason they're doing midwifery is to provide ethical care to women. So yeah, I, I, I think, get that the phenomenon exists. Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, I witnessed you pointing to in your questioning is this doctor discussing how things should be managed from the perspective of obstetrics and having very little understanding of the practice of midwifery. And I think that that is, you know, that's one of the main issues is that we are being held to the regulations of obstetrics, both in the law and in the cultural perspective, rather than really honoring midwifery as a completely separate profession. And that's just one more, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why midwifery laws can be bad laws. One reason is those are, those laws were written by doctors and nurses who don't understand direct entry midwifery. Another reason is the midwives are overseen by a medical board that doesn't understand their work and as their competitor or a nursing board that doesn't understand their work and as their competitor. Those are all reasons why laws can be bad, but you know, like in that, I mean, I think that relevant to the, to the situation in in Nebraska is this, you know, there was this case in, in 2010 in Europe in the, before the European Court of Human Rights, Chernovsky versus Hungary, that mm-hmm. declared that there's a human right to choose the circumstances of childbirth and that the state violates 
the birthing person's human rights if it fails to re- to legalize and regulate home birth midwifery in a way that upholds those rights. So again, the, the regulations always have to uphold the rights of the birthing person. And when they don't, with a she's not allowed, she's not allowed here or there, they're failing to do that. But there's an incredible, you know, when courts issue opinions, there's like a majority opinion, and then there's a dissenting opinion sometimes, or a concurring opinion where judges, you know, often there's a group of judges in a court and the majority is what we all believe, or at least the, the, the majority. <laughs> and somebody writes it to say, okay, this is why we made this decision. Concurring can be any judges in that group of, that join the majority saying, listen, we just want to clarify something about our, our thinking on this that was not written in the majority opinion. So there's a concurring opinion for Chernovsky that says some uh, makes a point that I think is relevant here, if I can share it with you guys, because it, it gets to this whole idea of libertarianism as it applies to regulation of home birth. And they say, um, this is the joint concurring opinion of judges Sayo and Tulkins. Um, while the autonomy aspect of the right to respect for private life, so because what they said is, Look, just as a woman has the right to choose whether, they said under the right to privacy, you've got a human right to choose the circumstances of childbirth. Just like a woman has the right to choose whether to bring new life into the world, she gets to choose the circumstances in which she brings life into the world. Um, and so that they, they say essentially in their concurring, we want to clarify why the, res- the right to respect for parental choice necessitates a minimum of positive regulation. This kind of a choice, they say, would have been a liberty in the 19th century, meaning you're free to go do what you want. As long as there is no state interference with the freedom, there would seem to be no problem. But the background assumption of classical liberalism does not necessarily work in the contemporary welfare state, especially in the medical environment. In this welfare system, and I think welfare is a, is a trigger word for us. It's not just food stamps. Welfare is like the state is involved in the welfare of its citizens. Yeah. Practically everything is regulated. Regulation is the default, and only what is regulated is considered safe and and acceptable. Suddenly, in the absence of positive regulation, what was once a matter of uncontested private choice becomes unusual and uncertain, and you know that's home birth. In a very densely regulated world, some disadvantages emerge for freedoms without regulatory endorsement. So this is about, again, it's not about taking away your freedom. It's about rubber stamping your freedom, if you will, by making sure that the regulations protect your freedom. And then he says here, in the present case, the increasing difficulty to find midwives and supportive obstetricians, troubles with civil registration, that's birth certificates, et cetera, might result in an environment which is hostile to the freedom in question. You know that's us. You know that's every state that puts home birth underground. While midwives are recognized as a profession, according to the European Union law, blah, blah, um, (laughs) blah, blah, where their activities run into administrative difficulties, that is where the regulation doesn't let them do what they want to do. Home birth becomes a hard and risky choice, even if the choice itself remains formally without interference, formally without interference is illegal. They're not telling us what we can't do, but nor are they regulating it. And what these guys are pointing out is that in an illegal environment, home birth is a hard and risky choice. And y'all know that's true in every state of this union where home birth is not regulated. And then finally, the sanctions applicable to midwives discourage their participation in home birth related activities, true. So in every state without licensure, you have less midwives available. 
Um, where regulation is the default, as in the medical context, lack of enabling regulation may be detrimental to the exercise of the right. And traditional non-interference is not sufficient. It's not a good enough to say, home birth midwives, go lie where you're flaying. Because you know what? Everything goes wrong in that situation, including the paramedics not being trained and equipped. Why did I know I could choose home birth in the Netherlands when I lived there from 2007 to 2012? Because I knew if an emergency arose, the EMTs would be trained and equipped. They would treat my midwife with respect. There would be collaboration and continuity of care every step of the way. And that would make it safe. I now work on those cases over and over in the United States where somebody dies because of the gap in continuity of care that was allowed by the state through the absence of regulation. So in fact, the absence of regulation does not in fact create freedom. Um, just let me tell you, uh, it says, this may be one of the many unpleasant consequences of living in an overregulated world. All right. So these guys can agree with y'all on that. It is here that an affirmation of liberty and positive law is warranted. And then finally, um, in the present case, the liberty is not self-explanatory as the expectant mother has to interact with during the period of pregnancy with authorities and regulated professionals who act as figures of some kind of public authority vis-a-vis -vis the pregnant person who is understandably very vulnerable because of her dependency. Fact is, pregnant women don't live in a bubble where they need nobody. And this is what these guys are, rec are recognizing. It is this consideration that makes us believe that a freedom may necessitate a positive regulatory environment, which will produce the legal certainty, providing the right to choose with effectiveness. Without, without such legal certainty, there is fear and secrecy. And in the present context, this may result in fatal consequences for mother and child. Drop mic. That's the United States. <laughs> yes. So it's time to talk about another one of our sponsors. And this is a brand new sponsor who I was fortunate enough to meet some of the people that work there when I was at a dinner in Austin, Texas from thisisneeded.com. So Bliss, tell us a little bit about them. Well, you know, what's so cool is Julie, one of the founders, was my client. She had a beautiful home birth with me. And I know this company really well because she's in Los Angeles. And Needed is a nutrition company focused on optimal nourishment for mamas. Needed offers the most comprehensive prenatal multi on the market with the best nutrient forms and dosages to help you thrive, not just survive. Not only is this nutritionally complete, but it also comes in three options, a powder, which I really love when they do powders for prenatals because some women don't really like to take pills, especially when they feel nauseous. So they can throw it in a smoothie and get a lot of great benefits. So that I really do love. Capsules or essentials. The founder of Needed are two mamas who discovered through their own nutrient testing that they were extremely deficient in the key prenatal nutrients, despite eating healthfully and taking a prenatal. They dug into the research and found that they were not alone. 90% of women who take a prenatal vitamin and yet 95% are left with nutrient deficiencies. So Julie and Ryan went to work and redesigned prenatal multi from the ground up with a group of perinatal nutrition and health practitioners. So check them out. They have an amazing line of prenatal vitamins and choline and collagen and all kinds of really great stuff. So check them out. Yeah, I got a gift bag from them and it was filled to the brim with all the different things they have. And once I get my medicine chest in order in the new house, I'll be excited to open them all and start giving the ones that are appropriate for me to try. Yeah, because they have a line for men too now. It's right. Great. And 
And you know what? There's a lot of variety out there. It's kind of like when you're shopping for shampoo and you look at the shelf and you don't even know where to begin if you don't have a brand that's your favorite. So let's make Needed our new favorite brand and use them. And all you have to do is to go to thisisneeded.com, just spell it out, T-H-I-S-I-S-N-E-E-D-E-D.com. And in this case, put in the code word birthing instincts, and you'll get either 20% off a one-time purchase, which is a really good deal, or you'll get $100 off of a three months or greater subscription. So go to thisisneeded.com and use birthing instincts and give them a try. They support us, so we're going to support them. Yay, Needed. Thank you, Needed. The regulatory state is only growing. Uh, it never The de deregulation never really occurs. And, and as you know, just as a tangent, which is on my mind, even though I no longer live in California, was just three days ago, um, Assembly Bill 2098 came into effect now, which essentially says that if a woman comes to me and says, I don't really want the uh, COVID vaccine while I'm pregnant, what do you think? <laughs> okay. Am I free to tell her what I think? Because telling her what I think uh, is a violation potentially of my uh, license and my license can be investigated and revoked. So what doctor is, I mean, the more and more fear is going to, not even just the home birth environment, but the hospital birth environment. Look at people who got fired from their job because they didn't, they yeah. were prescribing ivermectin or they didn't want to get vaccinated. That is only the totalitarian nature of, of these states is only going to get worse. And, you know, I don't know what the solution, this victory that you have, even though the judge said, which, which you impressed upon me, that something about a constitutional right for women to choose where they give birth, they're not going to listen to that. Who's they? The, the, the people in state legislatures. They're going to continue they to make things more difficult for people as long as they're lobbied by people who have an advantage with the current system the way it is. Some will and some won't. I mean, I, I feel like I one, of the, one of the lessons from this Nebraska case is get somebody outside of the medical community to put their eyes on the situation. <laughs> but inside the medical community, there's just this deference and um, unwillingness to look with clear eyes at the assumptions of medical authority and culture. But the fact is constitutional rights are constitutional rights. And so standing firmly on those rights in each and every conversation is the best thing that midwives and their advocates can do to ensure. Um, and I mean, in the California context, the loss of breach for California midwives led only to the harm of birthing women. You know, so like that's resulted in cases that I'm familiar with of violence um, following transfer of forced cesarean following transfer of certainly of trauma um, and abuse following transfer of women with um, breech babies that could have been safely delivered by their skilled and trained midwives who no longer felt professionally secure to do so. So that's a regulation that's violating a constitutional right of the birthing person and should be attacked as such. Yeah, sort of. So I mean, I, I just want to close the loop on this point that Bliss okay. is making about libertarianism and midwifery. Like, I think there's two, ultimately two there's only kind of two paths available to the midwives in the face of um, bad law. And bad law can take the form of either no law, you know, the law doesn't permit me to do this, to, to attend another woman with a baby coming out of her body, even though this is something women have been doing for each other since as long as humans have been around. Um, or that the law says I can, but only, uh, you know, only under something that looks like the European uh, midwife's oath that was put into effect after the burning of all of the European mid witch 
midwives as witches over three centuries. They burned them all as witches over three centuries. And then the midwives who were allowed to exist had to swear out a midwife's oath in which they promised not, not, they basically promised to tattle on the woman and to tattle on other midwives for anything naughty. So it was like, we promised to report the woman for any illegitimate children, which is of course, disgusting beyond words that that concept ever existed. Um, we promised to get the name of the father out of her, if, if that's not known during her travails. And we promised to report any other midwife for doing anything naughty. Of course, we promised not to help with contraception or abortion or anything that would allow women um, ultimate reproductive autonomy. So again, like th th that was that midwife's oath that the church and the state allowed for the provision of midwifery services during the birth of obstetrics looks a lot like some of these crappy wrecks. Um, so the midwife's choice in the face of that is to either get involved in legal processes with her community, certainly get your clients, midwives clients have no idea what midwives are facing. I learn this every day <laughs> and get them to stand up for their rights and their midwives. And, and, and then if that's not possible, then I think midwives have to understand that they're doing if they choose to proceed is to act in civil disobedience. That is the name for what you are doing. If you practice midwifery, in an unlicensed jurisdiction, if you um, go against your regs because they are unethical. Um, but there are kind of ways to do civil disobedience. Um, that's a, a concept that was first put out there by Henry David Thoreau. Um, it was popularized by Martin Luther King. Um, and it really means I'm going to do what's right in the face of bad law, period, even though I know that I'm vulnerable to the application of this bad law. But a, a foundational principle of civil disobedience, as Martin Luther King understood, is that you're willing to go to jail. Yeah. You might go to jail if that law is enforced on you. And so I think yeah. midwives need to understand this, that yeah. when they stand up against bad law, that bad law may be used against them. And yes, they can put the strongest argument they have that the law is invalid for various reasons, but that's a risk that they're taking. Um, and if I, they stand up against the law. Yeah. And I think that that's what you pointed to early on in this conversation is that the reason that they do what they do in the way that they do it is to make us afraid so that we don't actually stand up against these things that are unethical and and violate human rights. And that's that's what I'm finding in the in the private communications that Sue and I have with people who listen to our podcast and follow us is that people are, are wanting to find avenues and collaboration and support and community to start to do the right thing and not just continue to comply with things that feel against our morals. You know, like we can't go to sleep at night. We feel like we're witnessing violence and rape and, you know, women not have, or families not having choice. And so that it's starting to bump up against itself. And I hope um, that we can continue to give people a voice and some information to, to be able to do that. But I know that many people are afraid and, and that just keeps you in line, right? You just well, nobody has the means to defend themselves the like that. I mean, the, right. the, co the cost emotionally, not just financially, the totally. cost emotionally, as, as Hermine, you said earlier, the, the, the three years of, of, going to bed every night, not knowing whether or not you're going to see your children grow up. Who wants to go through that? Right. Um, you know, it's a calling. Midwifery is a calling. We've talked about this before. And the idea that that you can't give your uh, your client in different states, there's different rules. You can't give your client the options that that 
surely are reasonable and exist like 42 weeks or you know breach birth you have to transfer them out of your care um how is that helpful how is that beneficial but if you don't do that i mean how many how many midwives are doing things with their clients that they would never do otherwise we try to get to squeak in underneath the law this is not beneficial to anybody uh, and remember like the provider doesn't give their client any option. The, the option exists. The question is whether the provider accurately informs the client about the option that exists. The option, the, the option wasn't born out of the forehead of the obstetrician. It exists in the world. <laughs> your baby can either come out your vagina or there might be some folks that can offer you a surgical delivery. Of course, part of the, the magical thinking reframing of obstetrics is to frame surgical delivery as almost like the natural form of deep delivery. And vaginal birth as a procedure that you know that you may or may not be offered <laughs> when really it's a physiological process that that will either be with you when it happens or we won't be with you when it happens um and and so i mean a way that i think about it in terms of the deterrent effect that is kind of the focus of these attacks on midwives is that they're being punished for letting the cow out of the barn that's the way i thought about it when my own midwife faced her first charges for doing the breach in the twins you're letting the cow out of the barn and that is a very valuable cow if she's carrying twins so again, there's like misogyny underneath all of these assumptions and all of these accusations, which is that the woman is not in fact the decision maker. And if you spend five minutes talking to that woman, you'll understand why she made her choices and why they were reasonable and appropriate in her context. Yeah. So can you can you tell us exactly what the verdict was? Because you guys kind of talked around it, yeah. but I would love to hear exactly and how you think that's going to benefit um, future prosecution. Absolutely. Maybe. Yes. Shall I shall I discuss it, Stuart? Yeah, yeah. I'll go go ahead, and then and then I just have like a lightning round of a, just a couple of quick questions that I thought listeners might be interested to understand why this was done or why this question was asked. So, but the, let's yes. talk about the verdict because that is ultimately where you just were so charged when we were talking about it the other day that I just want to hear. Awesome. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, this verdict was really um, very thoughtful, and. Um, you know, it was really incredible. Like this, the judge who heard this case is a very experienced criminal trial judge. And he really kept a complete poker face um, for the entire trial. I had no idea what he was thinking about any of the evidence presented to him. He really remained neutral. And you could tell he was hearing all the evidence um, and arguments. And even through his, as he was issuing his verdict verbally from the bench, it's like until he said the words not guilty, yeah. like I heard him say constitutional right. And it was like, that sounds really good. But until he said not guilty, I wasn't sure where he was going with it. Yeah, so I think you grabbed Angie's incredible... hand at that point when he said constitutional right. I, I think I glanced at her when he said constitutional right, but I grabbed her when he said she was skilled. When he said, while it is true that she is not a licensed midwife, she does have education training and experience in home birth that moved me and, I, and tears came to my eyes because she did and it's all it was the case of this case and in all the midwife cases that the medical authorities are trying to tr to frame the midwife as an ignorant know-nothing who fools everybody if she pretends that she's not a total moron and that could only ever be lying if she says she can do anything because she's a moron and that's not true and um you know i feel like we proved that by showing with our cross-examination that the doctor would have done step-by-step -step exactly what the midwife did in the exactly. same circumstances um, and in other ways as well. And um, she, but, would have, so that she was, wouldn't have known what she was doing because she's never done it either. 
well, she would have, she would have done what she was trained to do on simulations on the basis of her training in order to try to save the baby's life. Um, and she would have done so, you know, even though she hadn't had to do this before, because that's what training's for. It's for those emergencies where you have to apply your training in a situation where you never had to apply it before. And you don't say, well, I never had to use this emergency skill. So have luck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she, right. she would have used her emergency skills and they were the same skills, um, mm-hmm. except to the extent that she might've drawn on some tools that are never available in the midwifery context or, or appropriate. Um, so, so the verdict, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, it, it like sort of had some chunks. His first point was there's other charges that could have been brought here. Midwifery or, you know, midwifery, um, practice in the midwifery without a license, practice in medicine without, without a license. Um, and those can be misdemeanors. They can be felonies after a cease and desist. Um, but those were not the charges here. And so that's not what he's looking at. And, and so he's not looking at whether she broke the law by practicing the, the with free license. He's looking at whether she, you know, committed the crime of negligent child abuse resulting in death. And so he's really clear. That's what this is about. This is not about whether it was okay for her to attend a home birth. And on that point, he doesn't, make a conclusive statement. He says, um, we're likely unlawful actions may have been a violation, but that's something that he hasn't heard evidence on. And so he's not making any kind of conclusion on whether in fact she violated those laws, um, whether what she did was the practice of medicine or whether what she did was the practice of licensed midwifery. I mean, I think that, that those, those issues could be arguable. Um, and, but then he makes his first strong point after that, which is the court notes that the parents in this case have con- certain constitutional rights involving their medical choices for home delivery of their baby, although those choices are not absolute. And then, you know, so he said that verbally from the bench. And he, again, he makes clear he's not saying whether home birth should be legal or not. You're right. That's not his position and that's not what he's been asked. But he does say that there are constitutional rights at stake here. And what is really, so this, so this is really important. So maybe I'll, I'll come back to that, right? I'll come back to that. <laughs> and so that, and then his third major point is in order to convict Angie, who was facing up to 20 years in prison for this, they would have to prove every element of the crime. They would have to prove that she caused her to be placed in a situation that endangered her physical health. Um, and that, and or deprived her of necessary care, did so recklessly, and that that was the proximate cause of the death, and that the child was a minor child at that time. And and then he says, so let's just look at the first element: did she act with criminal negligence? And then what he basically says there is, criminal negligence isn't civil negligence; these are different things. And criminal negligence means no and, dis- and recklessly disregarded the risk of death um, to this baby, and and you know. Here he makes this this very thoughtful statement. What makes this case very troubling for the court is to try to separate out the rights of the parents to choose a home birth with the criminal charge against Angela Hoff, which was essentially that she shouldn't have allowed. You know what I'm saying? So he's mm-hmm. seeing that juxtaposition there, shouldn't have allowed, but they've got the right. What he concludes about Angie is that she was trained. She was skilled. She never pretended to be anything other than she was. This is very, very important right because often in the cases against midwife there's an accusation that they that they defrauded the parents you know that the parents must have believed they were with an ob or must have believed they were with a nurse midwife 
Of course, that's never the case. But, you know, sometimes parents are irresponsible regarding their choices. They were not irresponsible in this case. This is not a case where the parents said the midwives made us do it. These parents blessed their hearts. They didn't ask for this. They didn't join in this. And they never tried to dump their responsibility anywhere. You know, and again, nobody was responsible for the tragic. Nobody was to blame for the tragic outcome of this case or, you know, the cases or any case of accidental childbirth following a, a complication and a tragedy in childbirth. These are all cases in which people are trying to build, bring a healthy baby into the world through yeah, he, he the made that, treacherous and challenging phenomenon of childbirth. Yeah, he made that very clear that everyone in this case. And so that was his last to, point. Yeah. It was like point, point, point one, you could have charged her with something else, but you didn't. You charged her with this. Point two, there's a constitutional right of medical decision-making at stake in this case. Point three, she wasn't negligent because she was trained and skilled and she never lied to these parents. And when the tragedy happened, everybody did their best. I mean, she certainly did. And I think we proved that um, over and over. But what this wise judge managed to say in this opinion that was just so incredibly moving to me that he's yeah. that he had the wisdom to see this and do this was to to describe you know when he told the story of what happens you know these parents knew the the baby's breached a decision is made to stay home baby starts to deliver what happened next was tragic but everybody involved in the case he said and then he listed everybody by name the family the midwife he listed the doula by name, bless it. It's so beautiful. This sweet doula who truly was there doing the best she could as well. Um, the firefighters and the paramedics, because what we had shown was that as usual in states where home birth is not licensed, integrated, the paramedics aren't trained. Again, in Holland, they're trained. You know, in, in Oregon, they're trained more than Nebraska, but still not enough, right? Like all this variability of do these EMTs know how to save a life? They should know how to save a life, you know, like a neonatal life. It's, you know, this is, anyways. Babies are born on the side of the road. Um, you know, neonatal resuscitate, like either they're trained in NRP or they're not, right? And so are your ambulance guys trained in NRP? These guys in Nebraska is not training its ambulance drivers in NRP. Um, so that was, you know, from a proximate cause perspective, could the baby have been resuscitated um, was an issue at trial. Um, but what he, what the judge did was refrain from analyzing by, by because they have to prove every element, if, if the judge concludes, that even one element was not proven, that's it. She's not guilty, right? So the judge has discretion. Which of these elements am I going to talk about them not having proven? Could have said it wasn't a minor child, therefore not guilty. Could have said no proximate cause because of the ambulance or other circumstances of the birth, therefore not guilty. But what he but he didn't do that. He said no negligence, therefore, therefore not guilty. In making that choice, he refrained from any decision that would have looked like blaming anybody. There's no putting the blame back on the parents. There's no shifting the blame to the paramedics. And instead, with that comment, everybody, firefighters and paramedics, doctors and nurses at the hospital, acted to the best of their abilities to save that baby. He put his arms around everybody involved in this case as one big care team. And to me, that's the opposite of what the case itself was trying to do and what cases like this try to do, which is create that division of the valid provider and the invalid provider. Those folks were doing their best and their heroes. That lady's doing her best and she's going to prison. You know what I mean? And she's a demon and let's hire, hang her from a tree and she's a witch. You know, like that's not, that's crazy. 
they were all, and so this was the truth. And he held that truth in a way that creates possibility for the world for maternal health as it should look like. Patient-centered care, woman-centered care means everybody on that care team, home birth, midwife, doula, paramedic, firefighter, hospital midwife, doctor, NICU team, all one care team, all working together in service of this family and their individual needs and the individual choices that they have every right to make. So in that sense, <laughs> the judge's decision was not only just by ruling not guilty, it was not only wise by observing the constitutional right, it was also, in my opinion, kind and loving to everybody involved in this case, which is what this case deserved. Beautiful. Yeah. There's more to say about the constitutional right, though. Yeah, I think what we'll do is we'll save uh, the, I was going to get into some of the micro questions, but this doesn't seem like an appropriate time to do that. I think what we can do is have our listeners who wanted to watch the trial and maybe want to send us on our new birthing instincts podcast at gmail.com uh, website, uh, not website, email, email. Mm-hmm. Um, some questions. Maybe we can have you and I've been, you know, Angie wasn't ready to come on at this point, but maybe at some point she will. We're sending we can... her lots of love and we're so happy that she's home with her family and she can recoup and rest and, do what she needs to do to take care of herself now. She's an incredibly strong woman and she was incredibly brave human being. Um, Over and over in my midwife cases, I'm impressed by um, the calm of the midwives in emergent situations, um, especially contrasted with the stories that I hear so often of panic in the hospital over VSD (laughs) and SVD natural spontaneous vaginal birth it's like baby starts coming out in panic and call the SWAT team and everybody's freaking out midwives face shoulder dystocias stuck breeches it's they're all on their own and they stay calm like I, I see that happening over and over and I'm so impressed and um and then also through the trial like truly you you saw that emotional release on the court tv after the verdict that she allowed herself there I saw no emotional release till that time and hundred percent of her focus and all the time that I knew her in working with her on this case was on the family and her concern for them and her love for them. Um, who of course she was completely cut off from by the criminal proceedings as is often the case with midwives who are facing criminal, um, charges that, um, the relationship between them and the client is cut off. And which of course then means that the family is deprived of the support, often postpartum support of their midwife. Um, but yeah, I, I think I just wanted to mention that I was very impressed by her. Like there's there's kind of two areas in which midwives can use legal support. Like it's it's kind of like before the bad thing happens or after the bad thing happens. And before the bad thing, it's really about your documentation. Like, and, and so I feel like, so that's actually something that I'm going to try to um, offer more comprehensively this year is like assistance with home birth midwives and their informed consent documents because they are everything everything mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the in ultimate in the ultimate defense of the home birth midwife especially when the fundamental charge is as kind of a fraud you know like um shouldn't have allowed her to stay home because she didn't understand how dangerous home birth is or whatever um yeah informed consents are really critical um and and trying to have those as you know n- not just have the documents but have the conversations mm-hmm. sit with that client go over every line have those uncomfortable conversations is cr- also really important and then on the back end, it's like if something, 
if something is happening. I mean, general generally, if if midwives are facing, say, licensure uh, investigations or any kind of investigation, it's good to have a lawyer at your side before you're questioned. Um, often, midwives facing say uh, licensure complaints, they you know frivolously filed by a hospital doctor after a transfer, say. Mm-hmm. Um, they think, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I'll just go <clears throat> tell them what happened and this should sort itself out. Um, the reason that like that whole sort of cliche, culturally cliche of like, I won't talk to you without my attorney present exists is that a, when we're stressed, we're not often our most clear thinking and communicating. So we, you might yourself miss some important facts. It's the lawyer's job to know what they're looking for to help make sure the relevant facts get told, to help protect you, prepare you from telling irrelevant facts, which might confuse this whole thing and bring in more issues that you don't want to have to deal with, to to notice if anything you said during that investigation interview could be misunderstood and used against you so that right there they can clarify that and, and kick out any misunderstanding. Because, um, you know, for example, in my experience as a lawyer, if a midwife calls me before the investigation interview, we can usually you know, if the law is on her side, whatever, and the facts are on her side, we can usually clear it up at the investigation interview phase. But if she does the interview and she is misunderstood and they, the board or whoever starts to run with a false story about what happened, I mean, I think this is just like human behavioral science. It is harder to correct a story that people believe once they believe it than it is to help them get the right story before they form that belief. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's, that's just something that, you know, in terms of keeping costs down, ironically, it's like bringing the lawyer sooner rather than later. Yeah. And Got then, it. but as for fund, I feel like this is an issue for the midwifery community to look at. I know midwifery today has definitely been interested in questions like this. I'm not even sure what they're doing as an organization right now. Um, but, um, I mean, you can, only, you can imagine the administrative challenges that you would face with such a fund. What kind of cases, whose case how far do you, how much money are you willing to put toward this? There's so many cases, you know what I mean? Like how would you decide which midwife's case to sponsor? Who's going to, who does who chooses the lawyer for the case? Are we taking this to appeal? Are we committing to appeal? Like those, those would all be like, almost like a, like, I think to formulate and manage such a fund would be a full-time job. Uh, It would be a worthy job just, you know, because it would amount to kind of lobbying. I mean, I, guess big push is a place that could be turned to an organization that could be turned to to ask um what's your organizational availability to help with advocacy relating to unlicensed midwives or licensure or whatever um yeah mana nacpm i mean these are all just organizations that i know of who are you know exist to serve the interests of midwives and i just wonder um you know what would be really interesting would be to have a meeting of like advocacy leadership from like AABC, MANA, NACPM, you know, uh, what are they called? Um, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, NAPW. Like it, it would be so amazing for everybody to come together and like brainstorm ways to like advance advocacy for women's rights in childbirth. And what comes up for me when I think about this is like the coordinated advocacy that happened for marriage equality, you know, like say 20 years ago when I was in law school, I was in outlaw, which is like for gay students, you know, uh, law students, because I saw, um, you know, issues around sexuality as really being the leading edge of civil rights uh, law. And um, and even then it was like 90, 1999, 2000, like 
like same sex marriage was like pie in the sky for us. Like it, like what our focus at that time was really around, around um, ensuring equal rights for same sex partners as if they were married. And, you know, several years later it was done <laughs> and like such powerful concerted advocacy happened there to make that happen. Then it multi-pronged, obviously using shows like Will and Grace to like educate the public. And with Home Birth, we have the opposite. We've got these movies coming out that like love the drama. I think there was one that came out in the last year or two that was cited in the YouTube comment stream for the Nebraska case about, oh, I saw a case, Pieces of You, I think it was called, or Pieces of Her. Her. What yeah. a name. What I know. a name. <laughs> the I first know. thing that comes up with that name is actually the image. You know how in the, in the obstetricians used to take apart the fetus with their tools? You're, um, you're muted, Stu. Oh. Anyway, yeah. it's a horrifying name. That's it's uh, called piece, pieces of a woman. Is what it's called. Oh, oh pieces of a woman. Really? Thank you, Stu. Yeah, yeah we re we reviewed it, didn't we? Liz? We did. Wow. We yeah. did. Right. Well, Hermine, I love that um, we're ending on a optimistic, positive, thought-provoking note because I think that you know that's what we need. We need to like think that things can change and that we can come together and create conversations for advocacy and, um, and look at history when things were, I love what you said, you know, there's bad law and people, um, stood up with civil disobedience and caused a change in the law and in the way that the culture looks at it all together. And I think that at some point we have to get ourselves organized to be able to take that kind of action. So I'm, I'm really glad that you've that you brought and, that up and, here towards the end. And Hermine, again, I'm so grateful. Um, my passion, of course, is to, is to reteach breach and twin skills. And I talked to you about it. I, I, you know, I would love to go to Nebraska and teach paramedics breach skills. I would love to teach the residents. I would love to teach Dr. Lessman and her team uh, breach skills. I would do it for free. I would go there for free. Um, I have this autonomy statement about breach that I just want to read as, as a part of a closing, if I can. Yes. Um, I wrote this. We are doing women enormous harm by taking away their bodily autonomy when their baby is breached. In theory, state and federal law support the principle of informed consent and informed refusal. And nearly every hospital has a patient's bill of rights that ensures consent before medical procedures. Yet we throw these legal and ethical rights away when a baby turns bottom first. We can do better. We owe it to the women we care for. Women should not be forced to leave the hospital in order to exercise their right to informed consent. Every woman with a breech baby deserves access to a skilled provider in her own community who can support her, whether she chooses a planned cesarean section or a vaginal breech birth. During my years in a home breech practice, I became aware that we obstetricians project a lot of anxiety onto the women we care for. In healthy women, pregnancy is a normal physiologic bodily function that works best when women are in safe private environment. Midwives are experts at their at normal birth. And in my experience, their model of care leads to better outcomes and higher rates of satisfaction. We as obstetricians can learn much from them. While breech birth at home may not be the ideal for most, it remains the only choice for many women in this country other than cesarean for breech birth. Our efforts should not be put into restricting choice, but into honoring our ethical obligations to the women we serve. We can support this goal by learning and then teaching the skills that make our profession unique by supporting colleagues who offer vaginal breech birth, and by advocating for more robust breech training and education from our professional societies. I wanna start our next show with that quote. 
That's <laughs> beautiful. And let's take it from there. Because well, I learned I learned I learned how to speak eloquently from you. I mean, listening to you. There's that dangerous cat, by the way. <laughs> I got two of those. <laughs> she turned off my she turned off my Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> so, uh, thank you. But thank you, uh, I mean, for coming on for yes. spreading your wisdom because this again, nothing could be more necessary than how we give birth. And at every turn, I see it. I see things going backwards in most states in their legislatures. And I, you know, how do you change that? I don't know, but one, you know, one battle at a time. And this is our, this is our platform. This is our place to make a stand. So that's where Bliss and I, again, want to thank you and want to thank Angie um, for yes. all everything that you've done. Yes. And thank you for joining us. And I wanted to also um, point to 118 is the episode. It's called Nebraska Birthkeeper, which is the, the time that we spent with, Angie, um, a few years ago before this incident happened. So if you were interested in going back and listening to that episode, um, that's the one, and I'm sure we will have you on again. I think you're our first, um, guest that's come up twice. So you, you might be a reoccurring character here on uh, the birthing instincts podcast. We, um, we love seeing you and we're so grateful for the work that you do in the world and the advocacy that you are doing for birthing families and for midwives that's and for our, and for your friendship. I mean, my pleasure, all of us together, we all have a role to play. Right. <laughs> okay. So you can drop off. Bill and I are just going to close, but thank you so all much. Bye, right. sweetheart. Bye, have a good day. I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. Uh -huh. See you later. So I hope I mean, she I hope she covered everything she wanted to talk about because whew, we could talk for hours, right? I mean, we could just we could have well, a we, conference talking. We didn't, we didn't even get into the nitty-gritty of the trial. We didn't even get yeah. into her cross-examination and leading Dr. Lesman down a path to get her to basically admit that she was violating her own concept of medical ethics by misleading people about the choices that you have for breach. I mean, it was a brilliant just walking each question with its own yeah. purpose to lead to the next question, to lead to the yeah. next question. And if she got a, a curveball from the answer, she she didn't flinch. Hermine didn't. She just I know. went right on with her next question. And she knew where she was going with all this. So it was brilliant. And, and I didn't get, you know, there were things I wanted to ask about, you know, why did they bring the husband on as a prosecution witness? Why uh, did they say VBAC and breach is more dangerous than than anything else? I mean, then, then the head down VBAC. What were the so much of their experts said was not expertise. They yeah. talked about you have five minutes if the heart rate goes down. They talked about a prolapse cord. A lot. Yeah. There is no evidence other than Angie what, at one point saying, What do I feel? The cord? No, no, it's it's a it's a foot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's the only reference to it. There was never a cord prolapse that was ever visible or anything like that even when the baby was hanging out. And yet this was a big part of the trial. Yeah. And the yeah. experts were testifying about cord prolapse and cord compression. And it's like, well, okay, but what's the relevance? <laughs> right. So we didn't get to any of that. So I'm hoping that when, you know, that we can get Angie to come on with Hermine at a, at a later date. Yes. In the I meantime, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, for we didn't we, we couldn't interrupt her mean to do live commercial this time so right. we were gonna up, we'll upgrade our 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 sponsorships next time but we want to thank 
Element, we want to thank, uh, this is needed or needed, and we want to thank uh, Splash Blanket for their support. Absolutely. Uh, why don't you and give them their, the information? amazing products. Yes, and, and give them the information once more products. for our new lines. Okay, great. So um, we want to hear from you, and this is the best way for um, you guys to do that so that we can include your comments, your stories, your questions um, in the podcast, which I know everybody loves. So our phone number that you can call and leave a message is 805-399-0439. And and then um, the email that we would request that you all direct your questions and comments to is birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. And you can reach both Stu, Dr. Fishbein, and I at, at, those, um, at those places. So yes, we're because, because Bliss, and I, Bliss and I both need more things to look up uh, on the internet. <laughs> No, it's going to be less. We're going to, we're going to funnel everything in that direction. Um, so it's great to see you. I love you. I hope that, uh, your house, um, doesn't fall apart around you (laughs) and that you stay warm and safe and, um, and that you enjoy this time of, uh, you know, figuring out what's next for you. Thanks bliss. Same to you. Um, I'll be, I'll be seeing you soon. And, uh, Again, thanks for everybody for listening. And once again, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to all our listeners. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 